Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Book Riot Podcast. It's a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the book world of books and reading. Today is Thursday, July 7th, 2022. I'm Jeff O'Neill, here with Rebecca Shinsky, coming to you from bookriot.com. One of these little nice nooks and crannies of the year, the July 4th week, especially if it's in the middle of a, a week, you get, I think it doesn't, it's not the same as July 4th is on a Friday, because like the whole week is like a lead up to this. But if it's mm-hmm. on a Monday or a Tuesday, you get one of these like remnant weeks, which some people take off. And then if you don't take it off, it's very quiet. It almost feels like a long Sunday in a weird way. It's it it's an interesting does. week of the year. It is. It's interesting. It has felt quieter around mm-hmm. our office, which is interesting because I think we've only had one or two people uh, yeah. on PTO. But it it's just that time of summer, I think, also. We're all just kind of, at least here, it's very hot. Mm. I'm doing the, you know, like spiritual version of just like sitting on the porch, fanning myself and drinking lemonade. <laughs> yes. That's, Existential that's iced tea drinking is happening, yes. I think, all over yes. the place mm-hmm. right now. Um, and we've kind of come through... The summer book season, some stuff has come out. We're going to mention this in a second, but it's a great reading time of the year, which is leading me to mention that our next um, Patreon bonus episode we're going to record right after the show, it will be available um, Tuesday of next week. We're doing our favorite beach reads um, of the year. Last week, that's available now on the Patreon if you are a subscriber or need a little push. We talked about our favorite books of the year so far. Had a good time doing that. So go check that out, Book Riot Podcast. Um, I'm sorry bookriot.com slash listen to find show notes you can find a link there but also if you go to patreon.com backslash bookriot podcast you can find it there and we've got other stuff coming up from the summer one more thing before we do our first break and get into the newsy news um, another gig opened up on the good ship book riot an editorial operations associate there'll be a link in the show notes there i'm not going to read the particular thing i'm going to give you the 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 layperson's translation of what this job is Help us make this thing, right? Basically is what this is. <laughs> yes, the editorial team makes the content, makes the stuff that goes on the site, makes the podcasts, makes the newsletter content. The ed ops team, which this position mm-hmm. is a part of, gets all that stuff live and makes sure that the systems are working. Or when we make a new thing, they help identify and develop yeah. the systems. It's it's behind the scenes, switch throwing, clipboard holding, yes. detail-oriented, problem solving stuff. So if you like to... Get your hands into those kinds of things. Get your head around those kinds of problems. This might be a good position for you or for somebody you know. I'm going to do something I don't normally do, Rebecca, here is come up with a metaphor. I know this is oh, going to be strange. Really? Is this that... is, yeah, I've been working on it. It's, it's taken some time. Do you um, sure you've had enough practice yeah, I, sure, and preparation? I don't really know. Um, <laughs> it's going to take me a while to get there. Well, not a while. I think I've got to go by the way of my movie watching of late. I saw okay. Top Gun Maverick twice in the theater this weekend. Oh, it's so good. It's so good and so fun. Twice so, is excellent. So Michelle and, I, Michelle and I went and we had such a good time that we took the kids in and my mother-in-law and we all went together the next day because it was 4th of July and, you know, whatever. Perfect. But 
if you if you've seen Top Gun Maverick or or understand the idea of fighter jets and how they work right now, I think you in in Top Gun Maverick they sit in these F-18s and some of them are two seaters, which is a pilot and like a weapons radio information officer. The people in the plane for us are sales and editorial. They sit next to each other making the content and then selling it. They're they're flying the plane. But edops and operations, they're they're those the the men and women down on the aircraft carrier with those little sticks waving them around. They're doing the <laughs> yes. catapult stuff. They're filling up <laughs> the gas tank. You know, Hondo, he's there with his headset on. You got everything you need, Mav. What's going on? Let's do it. They're flipping the switches at mission control. So there you go. To understand what this kind of a j- job is, if you like also watching for all mankind back in this, back at mission control, um, go flight, go ops, go CIC. This is what editorial operations and um, ad operations does, but this is an editorial operation. So um, we have office locations in Portland, Oregon here, Vancouver. And there is a relocation stipend if you're interested in moving to one of those places, but we also have work from home jurisdictions, Illinois, New York, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Virginia. So you've got to get your butt there if you, one of those places or to one of our office locations, um, but you don't have to be there to apply. But the understanding right. is if you do decide to take the job or if the job is offered um, you got to do it this way the salary stuff is there benefits there go check it out I think we're okay to work with on the whole yeah I think we're pretty great and actually one of our uh, recent hires told us that one of the ways that they got a sense right. of what it would be like to work at Book Riot was listening to the episode that you and I did back in the fall of like the 10 year look back at the history of the company how mm-hmm. it's grown how it's changed but that kind of thing gives you a sense for not just what we're doing here, but who you're doing it with, what it might be like um, to work with us. So if you're passing this listing along to somebody that you think is a good fit, you might find that episode and give it to them as well for like, here is a sense of the flavor that you're getting into with these folks. Um, And as Jeff was saying, benefits are listed on that listing. Also, neither of us is involved in the hiring. So uh, don't send us questions or referrals for people's names. We can't do anything about it. All the Mm -hmm. info that anybody needs is in that listing and they can apply right there. I'd also say this, it's it's a junior position and it doesn't really require any specialized knowledge. So if you're a generally capable person um, and can demonstrate that you've done detail-oriented things, work independently, this is a lot of MacBook time and browsers and links and tasks and project management. Not not in managing projects, but being a part of a team that's making stuff happen. So if you're a librarian or a teacher or you're at some kind of regular office job and are looking to make a switch, this is a pretty good job. A lot of people have come to this kind of work from us. We're doing stuff like that before. So mm-hmm. it doesn't require any kind of code knowledge, no particular programming or even particular software skills. We'll teach you up on our system. So it is. A, if you've been thinking about trying it, this would be a one to try. Good for a young person, too, that's newly out of college as well. Um, yes. Might be a good fit is there. Okay, let's do our first sponsor break and get back. Bookwrite.com slash listen. You can find the show notes there, and I'll have a link there. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read, and I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her 
dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Underlined. Haven't read a Natasha Preston thriller yet? We dare you to try. She's known for her line of chilling young adult suspense novels like The Cellar and The Fear. The New York Times and USA Today bestselling author excels at putting fear into the hearts of her readers. So her newest book titled The Dare is about five friends whose senior prank goes very, very wrong. This is the perfect graduation season read for thriller fans who can handle a good scare. The Dare is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more about it at getunderlined.com. So again, this young adult thriller is about five friends with a prank that goes wrong. There are dark secrets, a twisty plot, and creepy I know what you did last summer vibes. So if you, you know, it's graduation season, you want to revel in that, but like make it scary. You know what I mean? Pick up The Dare by Natasha Preston. And thanks again to Underline for sponsoring this episode. Oh, also stick around at the end of the episode. We have an excerpt of The Fox and I by Catherine Raven, courtesy of our friends at Spiegel and Growl. You can get a, hear an excerpt there. Uh, and then also Patreon members are going to have a chance to win a copy. So more about that to join. If, if you're a Patreon member, or find out more uh, by joining. Um, Biologist, it's a memoir uh, who strikes up a friendship, relationship with the wild fox. And, uh, you know, the closest comp, I think, obviously, is H is for Hawk. I, I really like this book. Um, and I think you all will, too. So thanks to Spiegel and Grau. And that's at the end of this episode. So after you hear Rebecca and I sign off and you hear our bumper music, there's still a little extra something there for you. Um, okay, follow-up stuff. I guess a little bit of... Do we have, is any of this really follow-up? I guess this is all pretty new stories. I'm mm-hmm. going to jump down because the story is now over. No, no, this I'll start here. Sorry. Public service yeah. story. Speaking of librarians, I'd imagine if you work in a library setting of any kind, you probably already know this. But I can't bear the thought of not, if someone out there knows someone who is or is someone who's a librarian that has some student loan stuff. But part of the federal student loan forgiveness packages includes affordances for people who look work in vi- libraries of multiple different kinds. There'll be a link in the show notes here. This is the American Library Association website where depending, you know, again, I can't guarantee anything, of course. I don't know the specifics of this. But if you work in a library setting or know someone who does and you've got some student loans some, somewhere, sitting around somewhere, do yourself a favor and go see if you're eligible for some or all of the forgiveness. And I think there's some teacher stuff too, but the one I saw here was about library workers. This came up in my RSS feed. And I, I need to, pe- nice. maybe this can save someone 10 or 15,000 grand, maybe more depending on what you do. And again, I would imagine that the the library core has disseminated them widely amongst themselves, but you never know, Rebecca. The future's here. It's just unevenly distributed, as William Gibson said. <laughs> um, I just wanted to make sure. So public service, please go and get yourself some of that sweet, sweet, sweet loan forgiveness if you're eligible. Um, Okay, wanted to take care of that. A story that came and went, but also didn't. I've got questions. 
this <laughs> McMillan security breach. Did you follow this at all over the last week? It started when I was on vacation. Mm-hmm. And so then when I came back, I it was one of those things where I became aware of there is a McMillan security breach. But I was like, that happened while I was gone. So I have not gotten into the details of this. Yes. I, I look, I'm fresh. I'm ready to hear your version of the story and well, we'll questions together. My version of the story is I, I've got a, I've got the end pieces. I've got the bookend stories. The, the original one I saw in tech, if this made it to TechCrunch, I saw it in my Wall Street Journal app. It was in the New York Times about Macmillan had, TechCrunch says that this was a ransomware attack. I have not seen that corroborated other places. So I'm just going to report what TechCrunch is reporting. This is Carly Page for TechCrunch. And this was on July 1st. Okay. So right before the holiday weekend, um, Macmillan spokesperson Aaron Coffey told TechCrunch that the company recently experienced a security incident that involved the encryption of certain files on our network. And so Carly goes on to say that that use of encryption by the hackers indicates that it's probably some sort of ransomware attack. And at that moment, Macmillan was not able to do jack crap, I think is the uh, technical term here. They couldn't that take does, orders. They couldn't process orders. Um, and then it was, and then the follow-up link I have is from Publishers Weekly from the 5th, I believe. Let me make sure I've got this right. Uh, waiting for my webpage to load. The 6th. Um, Jim Milliot, the inimitable, the always, we're, we're talking about Jim. We need to have him on the show sometime. Should we just have Jim on and say, like, tell us, a, what's the <laughs> most interesting story you've ever covered for Publishers Weekly? That'd be a good segment. We could do that. Um, I'm getting distracted. But then on Ju- July 6th, Macmillan begins processing orders. And here's what they said. Um, quote, to quickly work through the backlog of orders submitted while our systems were down and we were down, we do not anticipate the need to move any on-sale dates at this time. So we have to move any publication dates around, on-sale okay. dates around. But that's all they said. I did. Did Macmillan pay a ransomware? Did they pay a oh. bounty? What happened here? They I don't, don't tell know. us it, anything. The, the TechCrunch piece notes that the attack happened on June 25th, and yes. so now we're a couple weeks out from when this occurred. Yeah, I mean, if you get a ransomware attack, you have to pull all of your systems offline. Something is going on behind the scenes for you to be able to come back online. And yeah. access orders, fulfill orders, do the things that you do with the internet. I, I don't know. I think I also have questions. It yeah. is a very short little piece. Very here short piece. Weekly. So yeah, again, <laughs> going back to the realm of metaphor, someone's like, I turned off the lights in your house. In order for me to turn them back on, you got to give me a, a, a sweaty wad of cash. To quote, um, that's as right. good as you gets, I guess. Um, and the lights went back on. Right. So That's... did the cash, <laughs> did the cash go over? Cause McMillan is not saying here and I, you know, maybe Jim asked the question, you know, some of how this reporting works is, you know, it's not favor trading necessarily, but with a nod and a wink, like I'm going to tell you the story and maybe he didn't feel empowered or maybe he did. And they said, this is off the record. I don't know. There's a lot of ways this could happen, but I would have liked to have seen McMillan could not confirm nor deny <laughs> that money changed hands with some, third party yeah, I mean, to do this you, in a nefarious way it's self-explanatory that mcmillan if they did indeed pay off ransomware folks wouldn't want to come out and say mm-hmm. hey this will work for you <laughs> if yeah. you want to conduct a ransomware attack on us but it is noticeably absent from the follow-up like any what happened any is question right like right. what happened right. right just what right what happened and like how many people inside Macmillan know what happened? 
how yeah. open or hush hush was it? I we're, I think we're just going to have to have our questions, which is not yeah. my favorite way to have questions. But this is very it is very curious. I remember like while I was on vacation, getting a notification from something that was like Macmillan shut down cyber attack something something and being like, oh, wow, that must be a big deal to be getting a push notification about it um, from a you know, mainstream, not just bookish news site uh, that it pr- seems like it was seems like it was a pretty big deal mm-hmm. and apparently mcmillan o- employees didn't go to the office for a day or two and now it's around the holiday and i saw a report about that that i don't have a link to so take this now as hearsay um but there might even be some physical concern about mm. something going on so maybe we'll see but we don't get a ma- we don't get a big five publisher unable to process orders with the hint of some kind of attack. Yeah. Well, and I wonder if it, when it took its systems offline, were, were we talking of just about ordering and fulfillment systems? Or is this all of like, if you're a Macmillan employee, could you not access your email that day? Like there, I could see that there might've been a reason to like, there's no point in coming to the office. We can't do jack crap. Yeah. If the ransom, again, if, this is a ransomware attack. I, it'd be strange if the ransomware people were like, it's just the warehouse. We're going to leave right, all your pu- right. public data and all. We're going to leave alone all that other stuff. Because notoriously, people who ransom people are very cognizant and compartmentalized very well. Yeah, not they make very, it very selective. Easy. Not very selective. If they've got the keys to your house, they're not like, just don't come in the bathroom. Everything else is fine. Just don't come in the bathroom. And, you, you know, I, I think there's a bigger story here. And if you are a little birdie who has access to your email now, um, <laughs> I will keep whatever you told me and could tell me um, anonymous. But very interesting story here. That's not, re- I mean, it's it's not usually the kind of thing we cover, but I've never heard of a story like this before. Mm-hmm. And it, we've heard of like hospitals and stuff, ransomware, but anyone with a, with a security system, anyone with, with a big network is a soft target for people. And, you know, McMillan's a multi-billion dollar company. Um, and I don't know, has PRH and Harper and SNS withstood these kinds of attacks? Why McMillan? I think that's an interesting question. Um, but kind of, it's kind of a big story. I remember Lib in the in our contributor Slack was like, McMillan cannot do anything and no one is talking about this right now. I was like, that yeah. is a fascinating thought. Um, that's there. Yeah, would you anyway. sum it up that way? It's really interesting. Yeah, I can't sell books. It seems like that's bad for a publisher to do. You would think uh, also, so. Also in publishing land, um, Harper, unionized employees of Harper have voted to authorize a strike. Is this Jim again? God, Jim. Um, publisher <laughs> Jim Liat, uh in Publishers Weekly. Um, 250 employees in design, editorial, legal, marketing, publicity, and sales department. doesn't sound very important when you put it that way. Just design, editorial, legal, marketing, publicity, and sales for Just, a publisher. Just, you know, all the things that go into making yeah. and selling a book. So they did a one-year pandemic extension in 2021, and the U.S. is bargaining for union things, higher pay, improved family leave, greater commitment to diversifying staff, stronger union protection. Um, the, continue, the unions will continue to work without a contract. So they've authorized a strike, but they're not striking. So we're, we're positioning chess pieces here mm-hmm. um, to see what's going to happen. Um, There's a quote here from Carly Katz, who is in the audio department. Um, The company's current offer isn't even close to coming to account for the current rate of inflation. Um, If they can buy a whole division and still have record-setting profits, they can raise salaries to match the cost of living. Seems like a good argument to me. 
Uh, it does. Okay. They they go on to quote uh, Lauren Harshberger, who's a senior production editor in, in uh, sorry, HarperCollins Children's Books, and she's the union chairperson. And she says in a statement that most of the union members earn low salaries that are unlivable in the major cities that Macmillan is located in, like New York and Boston. The union is comprised mainly of women who have an average salary of $55,000, wow. which is pretty tough to defend. It's hard in New York. It's a hard salary in New, in New York. Yeah. It's a hard salary in New York. Um, again, people make a lot less doing a lot of other things, but again, mm-hmm. this is unionized publishing, skilled knowledge work. That's a low price for that. And that I curious to see. I don't do you remember us talking about rank and file non warehouse staff folks striking at a major publisher? I don't think we've seen that. We've we saw the walkouts over, yeah. you know, various books that publishers were considering or planning to publish where staff have objected to it. Mm-hmm. I don't think we've seen a, like, for lack of a better term, like white collar office worker strike um, at a major publisher. And it's interesting here to know that while unionization has picked up across publishing and especially in independent bookstores of late, HarperCollins has had a union for more than 80 years. Hmm. And it represents just a small portion of the publisher's total workforce but that's a that that is a long history and the same union um represents employees at the new press moma the guggenheim and columbia university so yeah big net they're casting there yeah anyway i i hadn't seen this before and we'll follow this with we've seen I'm, i'm just looking at some notes here from other stories we've talked about strikes and union stuff at the strand and powell's um mm-hmm. so frontline booksellers um, but to my knowledge, I don't remember us talking about this story before. Yeah. Not that it hasn't happened in our duration. We just didn't bubble up. I don't. I think you're right. I don't remember talking about it before. I also have I don't know, ears to the ground, spidey senses happening about, I don't know that it would rise to the level of um, union. Not all publishers have unions, but I am hearing a lot about concern, disappointment, anger among rank and file publishing employees about um, how the executives of those companies have responded or, or a lack of response to the Supreme Court's overturning of Roe v. Wade, mm. whether they're acknowledging it or not acknowledging it, how they're acknowledging it. Is it, is it satisfactory? Are employees feeling taken care of? Um, do they get the sense that the folks running those companies understand how serious of a concern this is and how scared many of their employees are by it. And um, I have seen Publishers Weekly do some coverage of like how publishers are responding to Roe v. Wade being overturned. But those have all been like publishers are making sure to print more of their books about reproductive mm. health or, you know, improve access to these types of materials. And um, I don't think that I have seen any public statements from like publishing executives about how they're going to be supporting their staff here. And I'm hearing from folks who work at publishers that this is sort of a bubbling issue that might approach a boil. So I don't know if we'll see strikes or walkouts or some sort of form of employee protest about that, but I have my eye on that. It's so fascinating. You and I follow the meta kind of employment landscape Mm and our capacity is trying to make a work environment that is hospitable to people living good lives and doing good work here. And it feels like we maybe have tipped over the moment and not to not to glide past what we just said, but think of it as a kind of a basket of sort of this employee empowerment moment that's happened over the pandemic, especially it felt like hiring was very difficult to do. People were really re- employees were really thinking of their lives. And a lot of that leverage came from that that 
employees would actually listen because unemployment was so low that it was hard to find Mm -hmm. people, right? So when unemployment is low, workers have more power. When it's high, they tend to have less. I'm starting to see in some of the big places, you know, in in the tech space, a lot of other places, what's going to happen? Because it's not going to be like this forever. Again, right. if, if economic history is any guide, let's assume that we're not at the end of economic history here, which is usually a good assumption. Um, we're going to go back to a day where there's not as much leverage. What do the employers do then? Do they claw back some of this stuff about mm-hmm. work from home, inflation-based pay, uh, family leave? Um, is it easier to fire, not fire? Is it harder to fire people that walk out over a Woody Allen thing when you literally can't hire anyone in November of 2021, right, Rebecca, or 2020? Yeah. Or when you don't have as much, le- or that you have more leverage to say, okay, well, then you don't have to work here anymore. Because that's not a move we've seen out of most companies to this point because it has been practicable at this right. point. Right. Well, in the optics of a move like that, even if it becomes practical to to try that to say okay you don't you don't like that we're publishing Woody Allen you don't have to work yep. here you know Netflix famously is doing this right now okay you don't like that we Great make the, the Dave Chappelle specials too bad like the, the, mm-hmm. like this is a pretty general but I think accurate rephrasing of the statement the CEO of Netflix made about that like we're gonna public we're going to you know on the Netflix side we're gonna produce a lot of TV for a broad array of audience members we're going to try to reach as many people as possible to get them watching as much as possible you don't have to like all of it and if you are upset about some of it you can go away you don't have to work here Mm -hmm. um we have not seen publishing take that kind of a hard line and you, you know netflix is not getting great coverage um for that approach for that statement i think it will be interesting to watch employers in general and publishing in specific just because that's the industry that we're in um if it becomes practical to try to claw back some of those things or if they believe they need to to try to protect bottom lines how do you justify that and how do the how do you manage the the optics of it i think um it takes on a or it could take on the kind of flavor of like, are you going to cross a picket line to go work for this publisher that mm-hmm. is, you know, like removing benefits from people or are basically saying we don't care about specific things anymore just because it's easier to hire um, would be would be really interesting to see. I mean, I hope that we don't see that. I hope that the improvements that we've seen publishing make in becoming more equitable, taking better care of employees, like the salary stuff really needs <laughs> to improve um, for having staff that are required to live in New York or Boston or, you know, major cities that are expensive to live in. It would be, uh, it would be disappointing to see some of that pulled back, but I can understand why they might be tempted to. Yeah. What you'll see is a separation between what employers have agreed to and what they believe. The stuff they've merely agreed to will go away and the stuff they believe will stick around in whatever form that takes. Well, we did see some of a hard line. Now, again, the Pence book hasn't come out yet, but Dana Kennedy and the folks at SNS- Well, they, there was a series of town halls, and we got leaks, and then that kind of went away. Um, maybe true. it will rear its head again. I'm sure this book will drop at an optimal time for Pence as he, I don't know, as a, around the Republican convention or something right before, maybe some prime. I guess the Republican convention is when the nomination actually happened. So before the primaries, with enough time for him actually to do the thing that we all know he's going to do and run for president, that's when that book will come out. When that book comes out, what will the employee response be? Because it was it was short of Woody Allen, but still pretty mm-hmm. full-throated. 
And Netflix is the, is the right example because they've seen their business turn and they don't mind shedding some folks. They fired people proactively because they needed to cut headcount. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an easy and convenient moment for yeah. them to be like, oh, you don't like this. You can leave because they need to get rid of people anyway because yep. they've had their first down quarters in their entire existence. Yep. And so, you know, where optics is basically code for PR leverage, I guess. Right. If the optics don't hurt you, then the leverage has gone away. If they don't hurt you with the court of public opinion, with your workforce, other places, maybe it's different. It's it's easier to walk out if you really don't think you're going to be fired than if you do think you're going to be fired. So how much mm-hmm. is the appetite for the people who are going to do for Hachette in 2023, if that Woody Allen book comes out, when I I would guess the, the employment environment will be considerably different, even if it just regresses to the mean, you have much less, you have a lower margin of employment safety then. And it's, I'm not saying anyone's wrong to do that. I myself would be like, I'm a lot less interested in losing my job when I know it's going to be hard to find one. Sure. Or I'm a lot less interested in putting my neck on the line when there's actually an ax up there rather than just sort of, I'm up on the gallows with no threat of getting my head chopped off. Makes total sense. But these things come and go. And just because it was one way for for a while doesn't mean it's going to stick around. I think as the tide goes out on this, what sandcastles or what structures have been built? Are these all sandcastles mm-hmm. that are going to get wiped away? Or have some new structures really been built here? I think it's an open question. I'm fascinated to see. Yeah, I think so too. My read on the, how that landscape has changed is that what employees want and expect and consider to be a good work environment or good treatment from their employers has shifted in a meaningful and I think not permanent forever, but lasting way. And how long employers are willing to be responsive to that will go along with it. I think the way that you phrased it, we'll see what people have just agreed to and what they have and versus what they've actually had changes mm-hmm. of heart or come to understand. I don't know if their responsibilities as an employer, the kind of employer they want to be. All of that is going to be really interesting and revealing over the next couple of years as we continue to, to settle from the original big disruptions um, of COVID. Mm-hmm. Interesting stuff to follow on the meta scale with publishing there. Mm-hmm. Let's do our second sponsor break um, and do some individual book and author talk. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Disney Books. Do y'all like Caribbean mythology? 
what's more a thriller inspired by Caribbean mythology? If you do, I got something for you. A must-read thriller that draws from the darkest corners of Caribbean mythology from acclaimed author Sarah Das, who crafts a chilling tale of magic, murder, and how far we'll go to protect what's ours. It's perfect for fans of Angeline Bully and Tiffany D. Jackson. So, unlike other people on the small island of St. Virgil, Selena Da Silva does not believe in magic. She has a logical mind. She likes botany. She wants to study pharmacology. But then her mother gets sick and she's tethered to the island and she has to make money. So what does she do? She cons a couple gullible tourists with these useless talismans and phony protection rituals. But then one of the tourists ends up dead and at the center of a strange string of murders. And the truth Selena has been denying can no longer be avoided. There is evil lurking in the forest that surround St. Virgil. Now to find out what that evil is, make sure to pick up It Waits in the Forest by Sarah Das. And thanks again to Disney Books for sponsoring this episode. Jasmine Ward wins the, I, is, this, I, is this real? Congress Prize for American Fiction, Library of Congress. It, it's real. It's, it sounds kind of generic, right? Well, yeah. The youngest <laughs> ever um, at the age of 45. And- a Lifetime Achievement Award. If you're Jesmyn Ward, you're glad to get that, but are we okay? Do, you want, do we like Lifetime Achievement Awards at 45? <laughs> I'm not sure. I I just, I have a lot of questions about this yeah, one. Yeah, let's go. You know, first off, like, our Jesmyn Ward fan bona fides are strong and established here mm-hmm. on this podcast. We appreciate her. Salvage the Bones, Sing Unburied Sing, the nonfiction, the memoir about the men we reap, that one. Her books are wonderful. Yep. She's an important writer. Great. I think 45 is young for Lifetime Achievement. Is young. And three books is career young for Lifetime Achievement. I think like, so too. That I think I just think this is early. Like those three books are good enough to lay the foundation that when Jasmine Ward is 65, we give her this award and we're all like, oh yes, this makes sense. And we saw it. We've seen this coming for 20 years. Mm -hmm. Like she's the kind of writer that you, you believe is going to have a distinguished and important career. But when you put it up against the list of like previous winners include Toni Morrison, Dennis Johnson, Don DeLillo, Louise Erdrich, Marilyn Robinson, and Colson Whitehead, those are much longer careers. In most cases, those are much deeper backlists. You know, yeah. Marilyn Robinson, only four novels, but a lot of nonfiction writing. And so I think all the things they say about Ward here are true. You know, the Librarian of Congress, Carla Hayden, says, mm-hmm. you know, Jasmine Ward's literary vision continues to become more expansive and piercing, addressing urgent questions about racism and social injustice being voiced by Americans. Her writing is precise yet magical, and I'm pleased to recognize her contributions to literature with this prize. Great, yes, true, will probably continue to be true. Why this author right now is my question. Yeah, it's not... There's nothing wrong with the pick. It just feels like right. the wrong award to some degree, right? Um, it's, it's, it's yeah. I love like, Ward. I think she's yeah. she. If if you're doing a power ranking for me of like the hundred authors I care about, she's in the top quartile. I'd have to. Mm-hmm. I mean, I haven't. I don't have a list in my head. I should do this list, by the way. Um, <laughs> but if 2018 like... Time Magazine's list of most hundred influential people in the world, yeah. youngest person. What do you get for this? Is there, do you get, you get a, a plaque? Do you get money? Like, what do you do? I, you get to be distinguished. I don't know. I don't know what you get other than 
than honor mm-hmm. here. It's it's this the feels just it just feels early to me, and it's making me realize I think we need some midstream mid career award. That's a great. For like, that's a great. That's a great. Like a to like sing a, on that for a second. Like a second base coach, keep going at a girl <laughs> kind of situation. Like you're halfway there. This is a strong start keep going you know kind of well I guess that's kind of what the uh, MacArthur Awards do is we recognize what you've started in your career and we want to support this and help you continue but that's like one book right like we're not surprised to see people have one book get that award that's really like we want to make sure that's the like beginning yeah right we recognize like the spark of genius here mm-hmm. since they call them the genius grants and we want to nurture and support that so carry on but i think a, 45 is too young for lifetime achievement so you either need to like rebrand this mm. as celebrating a body of work and some acknowledgement if the person is i think i think 45 in a writer's career is still very young um you know rebrand it to, like we're celebrating your body of work and you know can't wait to see we have have every confidence that what you're going to do in the future will be just as wonderful as what this is um but this is just way too soon for the way that we understand lifetime achievement to be and i guess maybe we could also just reframe what we think of as lifetime achievement it's like hey you're 45 and what you've done in your lifetime so far is rad and wonderful and here's your award if you sewed it up we'd be like great good job yeah Yeah. if she right if you're gonna have a three book career this is a Mm -hmm. hell of a three book career to have Mm -hmm. you know if you had a one book career and salvage the bones was it also a hell of a career to have had but that's just not how we collectively understand a, a lifetime achievement award to function Um, so it's it's true to the description that the library of congress provides that the prize honors an american literary writer whose body of work is distinguished not only for its mastery of the art but for its originality of thought and imagination so that's body of work but talking about it as lifetime achievement sort of implies like we think that your body of work is either finished or so big and well established that we can already confer this upon you i don't know i think she's very very deserving of all the awards this one just feels strange weird if this was fiction laureate because there's the american there's the Mm, there's the poet laureate mm -hmm. and that's really like your mid-career you're humming along right you're in the you're in the pocket um that would make a ton of sense to me and 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 maybe more might be my number one or looking at the list here might be among my very short list. But if I'm looking at Lifetime Achievement Awards, there's people, yeah, I mean, again, I, I don't want to besmirch Ward at all. That's not what this no. is. But like, it's Mm-mm. like the fit here seems a little strange. If this was the fiction American storyteller position or something like that, I'd be, yes, thousand percent. She won the MacArthur only five years ago. <laughs> That's that's right. got to be the short, that's got to be the shortest glow up of all time. And if anyone, I guess, deserves it in three books, I certainly would pick Ward amongst those. But yeah, I mean, there's Charles S. Johnson is still around. I mean, there's a lot of people that haven't received. She's got two National Book Awards, Time 100 Influential List, very very awarded person. So it's not like using it to prop Ward up. It doesn't feel like an endowed professorship at Tulane. But there are people that are less well known that Ward that have been doing a lot longer. That feels like it might be mm-hmm. a better use right now. Talk to me in twenty years. I'm I'll be ready. 
Um, yeah, but I'm, again, I, I'm not sure. It's kind of it's, it seems it feels like sour grapes. That's not what I mean at all. This, I don't want to be sour grapes about. That's not what I'm trying to talk about here. But like lifetime achievement, you know, like at the Oscars, they they give the 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 yes the Cecil B. DeMille Award out, and if they try to Damon out next year, and like Damon, <laughs> good job, Matt. Thank right. you for all you've done. Lifetime He's achievement what, award. Mid fifties, maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I think that's a great an- analogy for it here. I'm looking forward to the next 20 years yes. of Jesmyn Ward's lifetime achievement or yes. more. Yeah. <laughs> um, and Jesmyn, if you're yeah. offered this, you accept this. I of mean, you don't, you don't say, I don't know. You accept this. So it's, I just think it's strange to say a lifetime achievement award for someone that's 45. 45. Agreed. Okay. I don't know. Maybe Maybe we're being too hard on it. Take, well, you know, thinking about nicely. like that Colson Whitehead has won it. He's in that age range. And his body of work is just bigger. Yeah. No, he's older than so, 45. He's in his mid-50s now. Okay. I think. Yeah, still young enough, though, that we, like he's in the Matt Damon age range, where yeah. it's still like, you're young for lifetime achievement. I think when um, he got the award, we might have said that. If, <laughs> no, no. I'm, we said is, like it's I, a little I, early. I, yeah, yeah. Like, I, I think of lifetime, and it's like the Nobel. Mm-hmm. That's a lifetime, anyway. Yeah. Maybe I'm distinctions with no differences. Not sure what this. Speaking of things that deserve canonization, oh come on, Jeff, nice work. Um, Penguin Classics <laughs> is adding Marvel to literary canon. Let me be clear: there is no official literary canon that Penguin Classics has access to with the secret right. key codes. What I mean, this is Bridget Alverson, Publishers Weekly. What what Bridget is referring to is getting the Library of American treatment. So you've all seen these, you know. These library the of Am- or, sorry, I'm, I'm confusing them. Penguin classics. You've all seen these, um, where you get a nice introduction. It becomes available inexpensively, but this is prob. I hadn't thought about this, but this is already overdue. So I'm glad. I'm really glad to see that this is a thing right now. Yes, me too. the The first sentence of this piece, you know, in a groundbreaking addition to the Penguin Classics series, long noted for enshrining superlative works of literature, the venerable line is including classic superhero comics for the first time with the publication of the first three volumes of the Penguin Classics Marvel collection, The Amazing Spider-Man, Black Panther, and Captain America. Um, The titles were released June 14th. And I had the same, like, this should have happened a long time ago. Mm -hmm. I'm very glad to see, I guess, this continuing evolution and acceptance understanding within publishing that comics are books reading comics is reading that comics have done important and you know progressive activist work in some ways in this space and are just as capable of doing that kind of work of expanding readers lives and their views on the world and just as being as entertaining and as valuable for Mm -hmm. all the ways that books and reading are valuable to us as prose is Um, it makes a ton of sense i think it's really smart comics have continued to have a moment and i think if they were like maybe really smart or on it you know i we don't know how long it took to get this deal done but it would have been cool to have you know captain america and black panther in the penguin classics sort of in the middle of the marble marble the marvel uh extended universe Mm. stuff that was happening um I would love to know, like, whose idea was this? What were the talks like? How long did it take? All of those nitty gritty things. Because this was someone's very good idea. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really happy to see I it. I can only imagine the licensing was nuts because this is Marvel, which oh, is God. owned by Disney. These are all under copyright, right? A lot of the Penguin classics, well, some of them are public domain, right? You know, mm-hmm. Dickens and things like that or or 
older versions of things that aren't selling a million copies that don't have movies and you know giant billion dollar tentpole films coming out in November. I see you, Black Panther two, Wakanda Forever, <laughs> looking forward to it. Um, so I don't know. I'd be fascinated to know what the deals situation here. Why these particular comics? Um, it sounds like because these are influential moments. It's like the Amazing Spider-Man, the original run with Stanley and Ditko, Black Panther, the original run there, Captain America, a few Joe Simon and Jack Kirby with Stanley. It is notable, like probably Superman and Batman and Wonder Woman too. Like if you're gonna do Pantheon stuff, but that's DC and that's Warner Brothers, which is. Viacom. I mean, have fun Mm -hmm. with this Russian nesting doll of corporate ownership of this stuff. Um, But this is really cool to see. And the thing I'm most excited about, I don't go really read old comics, but kind of like I was talking about with Recitative, the Toni Morrison short Mm -hmm. story that got published. I had read that before. I had an anthology. I wanted the for my I wanted the 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 tome for my Morrison collection. Yes, there is one. But for as a reader, what I wanted is Zadie Smith's introduction. And I think for me as a reader, the most the thing I'm most excited about here, this is a Black Panther, Captain America, Spider Man. These are the three coming out. And the introductions, Jason Reynolds is doing Spider Man. Mm-hmm. Akora Four is doing Panther and Jean yes. Lin Lang is doing Captain America. That's Excellent. an amazing. I wonder. I'm. I would love to read. I'm gonna pick these up just to read those. Um, Yang did not write Captain America, but he wrote Superman. So I think mm-hmm. a very interesting perspective on Captain America himself. I don't think any of these writers have written the character um, themselves. It'd be interesting if Coates had done the introduction to Panther, right? Yeah. Or Roxanne Gay, who did some Wakanda mm-hmm. stuff. But I think they're they're they don't want. Well, I don't know how how this went down, but I kind of like that these are informed fans and commenters mm-hmm. of these characters, not necessarily stewards of the characters themselves. Yeah, I think it also just is a wonderful illustration of how the way that we think about the quote unquote literary canon is evolving yeah. and expanding. You know, Bridget Alverson asks uh, one of the folks involved in the creation of this in, in this piece, you know, like, Penguin classics are usually like by acclaimed literary authors, but Marvel comics are a corporate product, essentially mm. produced by a creative assembly line for a mass audience. How do these collaborative works fit into a line of titles considered among the most noted works of English literature? And I won't read the whole response here, but it sums up to no one's going to sneer at the idea that these are really significant contributions to the culture. And I think that's right. Right. That that comics have been significant contributions to the culture. They were under-recognized and underrepresented by mainstream literary culture and literary publications, really until the internet um, democratized that conversation. And then Marvel took over (laughs) all of the ways that we think about entertainment. And it's undeniable. It is undeniable that these are significant contributions to the culture in general and to literary culture in specific. And I applaud penguin for expanding for you know free your mind <laughs> for expanding how they thought about this to, to make this move because those penguin classics alverson's not wrong they have been kind of a staple of like snooty literaryism and it's very cool to see this blown up a little bit i think that's yeah. just wonderful they're out now they were released june 14th um glad to see that there mosey on down to your beloved pals pick one up yeah, I'm curious to see the format and, and print quality, you know, full are they full mm-hmm. color, glossy. What are we looking at here? I have to go check them out. I hope they're being um, in stock. Uh, let's see. Gabriel Zevin novel is the Barnes & Noble July National Book Hub selection. We're using this. Okay, great. But we're going to use, we're going to talk about tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow 
as a Patreon episode later in July. So this is kind of yes. a note this. The reviews of this have been very good. I was going to read this anyway. Same. I am very excited to check this out. I don't know. What else do you want to say about it? I, that's it. Um, yeah. If you want to pick it up, it's since it is Barnes & Noble's National Book Club selection for July, they're doing a Barnes & Noble Book Club edition that includes a reading group guide, pictures and transcriptions of the author's handwritten notes for the book um so you could you know pick that up at your local barnes and noble when you go at 3 30 to see what the teens are tiktoking um if you are like why do i recognize (laughs) yeah yeah you can text me from your barnes and noble while i'm in my barnes and noble (laughs) just checking out the talk that's what they call it right yeah they call it there's a diner uh, in portland it's called the tiktok diner t-i-k-t-o-k one word but it's been here for 25 years i don't know do they have some kind of lawsuit on their hands i hope they're cashing in somewhere are people can are they coming in and doing little memes or whatever is it like free pancakes if you floss the dance not your teeth we're really exposing ourselves here now but uh i here's an idea should we answer the reading group guide questions as part of our oh. discussion of <laughs> do you ever look at do you ever look to the back of those when you pick up a copy with reading group guides do you ever look at the questions in the back i do and then i try to picture my group of friends having an earnest conversation in response to them on the whole i would say they are i don't even know the word rebecca uh, they're not bad <laughs> but do here's a question does any book That's, does anyone use them that is exactly where i was headed has any book club ever actually gone through the book club questions because you finish a book and you have some kind of thought about yeah. it and in my book club experience that's usually where it starts is somebody being like i loved it or i hated it and you go from there what do the we history- know about the use of those is a real right. we don't know because a lot of them are in paper, but like there's no data. There's no like pixel anyone's dropping right, like, and there's no other secondary the, indicator. The history of these, like when and why did publishers start yeah. putting reading group guides in the back of books, especially paperbacks? I have one friend who like one of their freelance publishing jobs was writing these for a publisher. I remember this. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like people are doing that work, like they're reading the book and they're doing that work and getting paid to write those questions. Listeners, if you are in book clubs Thank or have you. been and you have used the reading group questions from the back of the book, please let us know and tell us how it went. Podcast at Book Riot. Yeah, I'm, I think I'm going to look for this and then we will um, explore together the utility <laughs> of the reading group guide. Yeah, uh, I was going to pick it up in, in print as well. Um so that I can, you know, take my notes and do my homework before the episode. But man, <laughs> I look forward to especially uh, a live reading of reading group questions with a former English professor. That's going to be fun for me. <laughs> it feels like the only people that it seems like they would do it in like the Stepford Wives. And now open the back of our book and let's go through the re- there's something you know, that doesn't feel like it matches with how humans actually talk about. Books. Yeah, that's been you know always what my we experience should do is when we finish reading, we should each write three reading group questions and then oh, look at Jeff's the reading notes. group guide. Like yeah, it. Jeff's notes. Hmm. Reb's notes. Mine doesn't port over as well. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. I don't Join Shinsky's or some tough puns. <laughs> I've, I've been working on for 11 years. And I'm still dry. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think we've had one yet. <laughs> it just doesn't really work. <laughs> Shinsky doesn't rhyme with much. Yeah. Minsky's uh, Pizza, which is a local pizza right chain from the 90s. Not a lot of yeah, not a lot of Q rating in, on Minsky's Pizza these days. Right. I wasn't even a Shinsky in the 90s. <laughs> That's right. Uh, but I, yeah, that's this is my official proposal: is that we read the book, we each write three reading group questions, and mm. we see if those appear or something like them appears in the publisher provided reading group guide, and then we have our conversation. It would be an awesome Tumblr if when people. I guess Tumblr's Tumblr's making a uh, comeback. Like the most awkward reading group guide questions you could write for your book club. <laughs> like what, what would be the mo- the most oh, cringe inducing, I... soul destroying, silence. Uh, bringing questions you could ask i might be hallucinating this and i did not keep my print copy of it but i feel like my copy of where the crawdads sing had reading group questions in the back like it came out in what like november of 2018 and i didn't we didn't Mm -hmm. read it until the end of 2019 because i yeah i I read it on vacation at the end of 2019. It, that's that's long enough for them. They were in enough repeated printings. It's long enough to have added reading group questions, but it was still in hardcover. So I I might be making that up, but it it feels like I encountered reading group questions for where the crawdads sing somewhere. Maybe they're on the Reese's Book Club website. Watch the, anyway. watch that the, watch the questions for this are going to be awesome. Watch that they're going to be so good. <laughs> I hope they are. I would love it if like these are like wow, these are awesome questions. We could just piggyback off them to have a 45 minute discussion and it's like a close reading of the first sentence and then you can just explode into a burst of joy that's right i'm gonna be like eminem and eight mile it's gonna i'm gonna go nuts (laughs) anyway if you want to book club your way through tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow by gabrielle zevin with Mm -hmm. us that will be on the patreon at the end of the month uh last link we're not gonna spend much time to talk about because i think it's really kind of encapsulate a lot of the points we've made about book talk sales this is uh, elizabeth harris in new york times put a link in the show notes word of mouth on steroids is a phrase i've used she doesn't Mm -hmm. use that phrase but it's kind of in there word of mouth like we've never seen before highlights madeline miller colleen hoover madeline miller interestingly is not on social media so like this is not a situation where you have to be on it to, to 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 reap the benefits of it i don't know it felt like to me Maybe I am now New York Times man who comes to these things late like this. But it felt to me a pretty uninformative but representative state of affairs. Yeah. Right? Which is where, yes. I, where, where I feel like the whole world is to some degree right now. Yeah. On you the publishing dropped ecosystem. the, the link. It was late in, for you. I'm sorry about yeah, that. Yeah. But it was, I was like, oh man, do I need to really mm-hmm. try to read this whole thing quickly before we do this episode? Do I need to take five minutes, like get into it? And as nope. I was reading, it was like, no, this is a summary of the things. And that is one really great service that the New York Times and other you know, big mainstream media provide is like when you're in these little niche places, like we are in publishing, we're yeah. following a story like this. And it tells us something when it bubbles up to be big enough that the New York Times is talking about it. And it also tells the general public, here's the thing going on in the world in general, but probably in a niche that you might not be paying attention to. So I think most interesting is that this is big enough for the New York Times to be writing about it. I wonder, though, this, the follow-up piece, not to give Harris and Alter any notes, because they're way better at this stuff than I could ever imagine being to give notes on, is the piece I want is like, who are the biggest people making stuff on book talk and what does it mean to them financially experientially mm-hmm. because there's one 
TikTok person mentioned in this who's also a bookseller full time. So that's like not really the same thing. Right. And like, can you track back the yeah. start of the Colleen Hoover craze? Has there been a big New Yorker profile on Colleen Hoover? If there's not, there should be. That we're ready. Or Esquire, I, yeah, Vogue, one right. of these. We some. There's a big piece here for someone to do if I they're have not paying attention. Encountered that, but I would like to see it. If there's one out there, I know there's been little bits and blurbs, but you know, you you all listening know what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about 800 words on Business Insider. That's better than nothing. But I'm talking about the, the experiential story because we're now past the point of even the. We're not we're not J.K. Rowling level here, but I think we've eclipsed maybe the James level with mm. in terms of like durable sales. I'd I'd like to know. Madeline Miller has sold twelve or two million copies of was it Song of Achilles or Circe that they mentioned? I think it's Song, Song of, Achilles. of Achilles. Yeah. If she sold that many of that, I don't know what we're talking about in terms of the Colleen Hoover. It does mention here that of 10 of the best-selling books of the week last week, four of them were Hoover. I've mentioned similar stats of when I'm um, doing live thumb-throughs of Publishers Weekly. <laughs> but we, it, when, when Angels and Demons, or sorry, when Da Vinci Code hits, when Twilight hits, we would get one of these big trend cultural pieces in a major literary, or not literary, but like middle to highbrow, big circulation, big prestige publication hasn't happened yet and i think that's indicative of something that's also telling it's, in its own way i think it's indicative of the fact that tiktok is for a much younger audience than the new york times tends to be for and it takes a long time for kind of an old guard piece of media establishment to decide that something the youths are doing is big enough, durable enough, lasting enough to give that kind of coverage to. And then if you are like Esquire or the New Yorker, I guess to make the uh, the inverse case, not quite devil's advocate, mm -hmm. but like if you're the New Yorker and you're like, okay, we're going to profile Colleen Hoover, are people who read the New Yorker aware of her and what TikTok is doing and why that's an interesting thing to, that, that's an interesting piece to write, an interesting person to profile. Mm -hmm. Can they make the case to themselves that this is a good use of column inches? I think it would be. Um, even just oh, for yeah. educating, right. educating the adults about what the kids are doing on TikTok is also yeah. a service. I, I'm um, thinking of it, like something like time to profile. That'd be an interesting metric to measure. Like for mm. someone going from like an unknown quantity to a phenomenon, how long is the average time to profile for... I would imagine this has to be the longest, but you can imagine something like Twilight even being longer because that's tweens, vampire romance. Fifty Shades is a little bit different because there was a certain titillation factor, both about the book itself, but then the meta discourse. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, I remember Roxane Gay savaging it about one of the lines <laughs> about being drinking a white Pinot Grigio. I'll never forget that. I was like, oh, that's a devastating single indictment of, of that. But, you know, Da Vinci Code, it probably wasn't very long. A lot of that stuff took on pretty quick. We're looking at 18 months of it ends with us, with Hoover now. Mm -hmm. But it's happening in a yeah. space that doesn't have much, it doesn't have much inclination and there's not a property around it. I don't know. It's fascinating. Yeah, also, it's, think... a lot of her books are like multiple publishers. So is there yeah. a publicist out there stumping for her? In, I don't <laughs> yeah, know. I don't know the it's answer It's a good question. question. Yeah, and like, and TikTok is also not still not mainstream it's mainstream for much younger for the yeah. the younger generations but it, there's some combination here of like it's young people and it's tiktok 
does anyone who's not 14 know who Colleen Hoover is? And the answer is obviously yes. Yeah. But it's not being taken seriously, I think, because of a a combination of those factors. I think that's what's going into the time to profile because Twilight was really big, but adults were reading it too. And that was part of the big deal. But adults are reading this too. I think, I I think if we had the court of rightness, we would see that the demo is very similar actually. I I agree. But that, that craze was happening. Like, in your Barnes and Nobles and in your book clubs, yeah. like adults were meeting and reading Twilight in their book clubs. Oh, you would when know. I, You're seeing there like, with the teens. You know the adults aren't there. You've, I was you've seen in, the demo. Yeah, right. I was in Forks, Washington two weeks ago, and there are still adults traveling there wearing their Twilight t-shirts. <laughs> like there were adults wearing Twilight t-shirts in the airport on the way to yeah. Seattle. And there it was all over Forks, which is a total trip. <laughs> like, yeah. It's well, wild. The time to profile is an indictment of the outlet, not of TikTok. At Correct. This point. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's not TikTok's fault. It's I think the way that TikTok is perceived by established traditional mainstream mm-hmm. media. And I think even this piece, much like myself, to be to be fair, is struggling to get her head around how to even think about it and understand it because it's it's a it's a it's a lingua with 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 which I am not franca. Um, <laughs> I should say, and. It also is so distributed that you've really got to be embedded in it. And even if you are embedded in it, the algorithm is the source of truth, mm-hmm. not, you know, it was this blurb. Um, by the way, John Grisham was the initial uh, winner of the Library of Congress Prize in 2008. Interesting. Interesting pick. No, I'm sorry. It was Herman Woke and then John Grisham. Uh, that, was, that was a wild time. <laughs> to see I, I, I'm, closing, I'm closing out my tabs. <laughs> and Close I just that saw, tab, Jeff. I was like, woof. <laughs> There's a there's a choice. Uh, anyway, People as always, you things. can listen to all back episodes of the Book Riot podcast, bookriot.com slash listen and see the show notes there as well. Come Patreon with us if you're if you're interested. We're doing some stuff there. Um, I think we're going to do an Ask Us Anything episode before the summer is out as we're in the summer doldrums. Um, go find us there. And we've got lots of little birdies. Macmillan, HarperCollins. Reading group guides. Reading group guides. You know, you could be just a regular person. You don't have to be bird-like. You, you can, you can, there's, just tell us. Just tell us what you want to know. Um, thank you all so much for listening. And Rebecca, I'll talk to you again in literally five minutes. <laughs> have a good one. Have a good one.